is up, guys? It's good to be back with you. This is Jason Diaz with the Stroke Special Interest Group Podcast. I know it's been a while, but glad to be back with you. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about constraint-induced movement therapy. My partner, Corey Hall, conducts an interview with Dr. Stephen Page. And just to give you a little background on Dr. Page, he is a licensed occupational therapist. Um, and Dr. Page develops and tests therapies to increase function and independence after stroke and other neurologic diseases. He has held uninterrupted extramural funding to support this work for over a decade and has produced many firsts in the neurorehabilitation world, developing and showing efficacy of mental practice, portable robotics, modified constraint-induced therapy, functional electric stimulation, and several other innovative strategies in stroke. Dr. Page has published over 85 peer-reviewed publications, serves on the editorial board of several journals, has delivered over 200 lectures nationally and internationally, and delivers highly rated seminars to physical and occupational therapists across North America. He has also organized and co-chaired six regional, national, and international conferences focusing on neurorehabilitation including chairing the 2003 and 4 International Joint Meetings of the American Society of Neurorehabilitation and American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine, as well as serving on the board of directors for each organization. Dr. Page has also provided dozens of lunch and learns and in-services to community therapists and volunteers for local and national organizations. He has developed informational products and seminars targeting clinicians and stroke survivors. He has mentored over 50 medical engineering, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy students. Dr. Page also treats older adults and individuals with neurologic diagnosis locally on a weekly basis. We're incredibly lucky to have him with us today, so please welcome Dr. Page and enjoy the episode. So we are very lucky to have Dr. Stephen Page with us this afternoon, um, and he is here to talk to us about constraint-induced movement therapy. Um, so welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, so the first thing we really want to just make sure we let a set a groundwork for everybody. Um, can you briefly describe the traditional constraint-induced movement therapy protocol and a little bit of history behind it? Sure. Um, Constraint-induced movement therapy was originally developed um, uh, in part to, uh, once it was translated from primate research, to address the problem of learned non-use, that is, uh, stroke survivors not using the affected limb, um, the affected arm, and specifically not integrating it back into regular use uh, for, um, you know, bilateral and unilateral types of activities. So instead of patients reaching for, say, a cup, uh, with their um, affected hand, they would reach for it with their um, less affected hand, even if it was their non-dominant side. Mm. It was faster. Uh, they were more likely to get a, a good result. Um, and so that was um, what was discovered was this phenomenon of learned unuse. Constraint-induced therapy uh, in the traditional form is designed to um, overcome learned non-use. It has um, several components to do that and to basically habituate people uh, get them used to using the more affected limb. So one is patients wear a sling and or a mitt uh, if they need that much of a reminder um, on the less affected side, thus forcing use of the more affected side during 90% of all waking hours. So said another way, that means that um, pretty much whenever you're awake, um, 
you are wearing a sling and or a mitt forcing you um, on your less affected arm, thus forcing you to use the more affected arm. Um, the second part is that they are going to intensive six hour a day therapy sessions over a two week period. So during the same period that they're wearing the mitten sling, which is uh, during those two weeks, they're also going to therapy sessions, one-on-one -on -one therapy sessions um, for, for up to six hours a day. And the third component, and those are emphasizing um, arm use as well. And then the third component, which some would argue is, is the most important component, is um, uh, behavioral sorts of strategies, shaping strategies is sometimes how they're called. Others call it the transfer package. The idea here is, is about 70% of the stuff that we do in therapy gyms doesn't necessarily transfer to the real world environment. So what we're trying to do is use strategies to um, uh, get in patients' heads, if you will, to remind them to use the affected arm even when they're not uh, inside of therapy. And we can talk more about that a little bit later. Okay. Sounds uh, really intensive. Uh, so what were some of the issues with traditional therapy that led to um, starting to change it a little bit and go towards modified constraint-induced movement therapy? Yeah, it's a great question. So I was not a therapist when I, when I was exposed to this. I was doing a postdoc um, at a place called Kessler up in, northeastern, um, uh, in the Northeast in New Jersey. And when it was, I was first exposed to it, my immediate reaction was, geez, you know, why don't we just do what we do with workouts and dose it a little bit differently so that people can um, do it more easily and get the same uh, treatment effects as you would with um, spreading out workouts um, instead of, you know, going for six hours at a time to lift weights or whatever. So we started talking about that and I started talking to the therapists about that. And we also did one of what became four studies asking patients and therapists, would you want to participate in this regimen? And so we've done two studies, or we've published two studies um, asking patients and therapists, would you want to participate in this regimen and what would be the alternatives? We've uh, done one with aphasia because there's a constraint-induced aphasia therapy that uses the same parameters. We've also done one in pediatrics because people are starting to look seriously at uh, constraint-induced therapy in pediatrics. And relevant to this discussion, what, what made us in part start looking at a modified version was all four of the studies unequivocally showed that therapists really didn't want to do this type of intensive therapy um, for six hours a day. They were concerned about reimbursement. They were concerned about patient fatigue and their fatigue. And um, patients themselves had some of the same concerns as well, as well as um, whether they'd be compliant or not. So overwhelmingly, we were starting to look at what could we do to modify this protocol and still get the same types of treatment effects, uh, improving motor function, changing the brain, so neuroplasticity, and also um, uh, improving movement, obviously. Okay, so how does uh, this type of treatment, the modified versus the traditional, compare in outcomes? Um, and is it as effective or more effective? <coughs> um, just talk us through that a little bit, if you would. Sure. Yeah, so there's been a number of meta-analyses done, which is basically a study of studies where you look across um, different studies and compare their treatment effects. Um, the most notable one, which is out there that any of your um, uh, listeners can access, is called the EBRSR, the Evidence-Based Review of Stroke Rehab. And it's a uh, systematic review. It's free. It's updated every three to six months. 
And it has different modules. So it has one on the lower extremity, one on the upper extremity, one on the shoulder, so on and so forth. And if you go into the upper extremity module, there's a whole chapter on constraint use therapy. And what this very up-to-date and um, exhaustive systematic review has shown time after time is that there's level one evidence supporting both constraint use therapy and the modified versions. Uh, we stated there's very high level evidence that you can dose um, uh, uh, into a modified constraint use therapy protocol that uh, fits with the normal cl clinical parameters uh, and get the same types of outcomes and in some case better outcomes. So there are many clinical programs now using the modified constraint use therapy protocol. Do you want me to talk about the modified version a little bit? Uh, yeah, I do want you to talk about it. I, I think it's great that um, you know you can reduce it and dose it out, and you still get the same outcome. I think that would have been something that you know would have been a little bit surprising to somebody coming in. If you change the intensity, you might get a little bit different. So that's that's really cool to hear. Um, yeah, if you want to talk a little bit more in depth about the modified outcomes, that would be great. Sure. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I think it's, still, it's obvious that, or maybe not obvious, but it's intuitive anyways, that uh, to your point, if we do lots and lots of therapy, someone's going to get better. Um, just like if we did lots and lots of working out, someone's going to get better. But really, um, uh, that's why we have phase two studies. And you got to realize that the constraint-induced therapy studies went straight from initial pilot studies to um, basically the big EXCITE trial, which was a phase three multi-center trial. And smaller dosing studies were never done to see if we could calibrate um, the dose of constraint-induced therapy to make it shorter uh, and still get reasonable treatment effects. This is done in drug studies, but not necessarily in behavioral studies. We get very excited sometimes about these promising therapies and go straight to the big study. So the modified version is basically what started out as a dosing uh, sort of question and then became something that, that looked really effective and has been replicated many times. Um, it is administered, there, there's three parts to it, just like the traditional version. Um, patients go to therapy three times a week for half an hour over a 10-week period, so 30 sessions of outpatient therapy. It's a lot of um, uh, teaching. It's a lot of um, homework-based stuff because patients obviously aren't seeing the therapist as much, um, and it's distributing the practice protocol over a 10-week period, uh, as I said. So that's the first component. The second component is that five days a week during the same 10-week period, patients are going home and using the slinger mitt Five, um, for five hours a day, five times a week. I think I said that already. So five hours a day, five times a week for 10 weeks, patients are using the sling and the mitt, thus forcing use of the more affected side. And that's really important, Corey, because what ends up happening is you get more repetitions and more practice attempts with that duration than you do with traditional constraint-induced therapy. Hmm. In other words, we believe that um, the most important component, or one of the most important components, is people going home and practicing stuff and trying stuff and having errors. And during regular constraint use therapy, you do that for about two weeks for, for, um, and you do it for 90% of waking hours. But with this, you're doing it for 10 weeks. And the number of hours is, um, that you're practicing at home, reintegrating that affected arm is much, much higher. So we think we're getting more of um, sort of the good, one of the good main ingredients by just distributing the practice schedule. 
Yeah. So, and the what's that? It doesn't, it doesn't sound le less intense. You're actually getting more. It's just more distributed. That's that's interesting. Not thought about that way. Exactly. And there's there's on the side there's very very decades of research, very good research showing that distributed practice schedules are actually more effective for motor learning than mass practice schedules where you're doing everything all at once. It has to do with um, the nervous system's ability to clump information, to consolidate information and mash it together, and that happens um, more effectively over longer periods of time. So we think we're onto something with, we thought we were onto something with that. And then the third part is exactly as with um, constraint-induced therapy, there are some behavioral components that we emphasize just to get patients to buy in and as I said, to sort of get in their heads a little bit and build insight and um, make sure they're doing what they need to do at home so there's carryover. So three components, just like the main constraint or the traditional constraint use therapy, just distributed in a way that is uh, clinically practical and could be administered um, more easily without um, uh, encountering the time constraints and the fatigue constraints um, that have been documented with constraint use therapy. And, and you talked a little bit about patient satisfaction related to traditional constraint movement therapy. I don't know if you've done a, any formalized study, but do patients enjoy it more or find it more reasonable um, to do that as well, I would imagine? Well, we've never compared them head to head, and I don't think anyone has. And But I, I would imagine that I, I do know that there's... Um, that they've data mined um, the constraint-induced therapy, uh, one of the big constraint-induced therapy trials. They've gone in and looked at the data and looked at secondary data and different things like that. It's called data mining. And they found that the patients who were um, assigned to do constraint-induced therapy actually only, which is six hours, only were able to muster about three hours a day of therapy on average. So, and that, that result's been published for a while. And whereas with this, there's, um, you know, high compliance, uh, the only reason people usually sort of drop out of it is if they don't comply or if they, um, you know, have transportation problems getting to therapy or something like that. So um, there's never been a direct comparison, but certainly the data are out there suggesting that um, it's, it's easy to do and that people are, are quite pleased with it. And it's, you know, being used clinically um, across the U.S. That's awesome. Um, so... We've talked about now the, the process of how it goes, the intervention. Um, what kind of outcomes can you expect with modified uh, constraint new movement therapy? Did we already ask Yeah, that? great question. <clears throat> nope, you didn't ask that question. That's a good question. Um, so I think there's a couple things. One is sort of the basic impairment sort of changes, meaning that you're going to see changes in gross movement, ability to move not only the wrist and fingers more in gross patterns, but we also say, uh, see what I call upstream changes, which is when you start using the wrist and fingers to, to do so and to transport them into places, you've got to use the elbow and you've got to use the shoulder to, to get places with the wrist and fingers to get to a plate or get to a shelf or get wherever you need to go. So we start seeing upstream changes in the proximal areas of the, of the arm uh, above and beyond what we see distally in the wrist and fingers. Um, Speaking of distally in the wrists and fingers, we see um, some pretty remarkable improvements. Uh, people start off with um, just a little bit of extension in the wrist, uh, two digits and in the thumb. And by the end of the protocol, they're able to write, they're able to, um, you know, uh, manipulate small objects, uh, 
eat, do different things like using finger foods, different things like that. So um, the, the tasks are as varied as, as the patients, as you can imagine, um, drinking out of a coffee cup, so on and so forth. So um, those are sort of the performance-related benefits we see. And then the last part that I think is important is they use the affected arms. So we've followed up with patients up to six years and up to a year even after they've done modified constraint-induced therapy. And what we found is that these patients continue to become more brave. They, they realize they can use the limb. They, um, uh, what's the word, internalize that they can use the affected limb. They see that they're improving and um, success begets success. They start doing more and more and you see these upward spirals to the point that um, the limb never approach, um, becomes normal, but you do see more of a normalized use pattern where they're they're reaching for stuff and they're they're not hesitating to uh, shake someone's hand with the affected arm. They're not hesitating to um, uh, just automatically grab for um, a comb or a brush or a toothbrush or something like that. They're just habitually reaching for the for the for objects. Um, and I think I think all those things are also true with constraint use therapy as well. Um, it's just we're able to do it by distributing out the practice schedule. That's interesting. I think that speaks to some of the underlying uh, learned non-use aspects um, and and how they would grow. And, and if you can break through some of that cycle, um, you, you use it more regularly. Um, and it, exactly. it, it can kind of snowball. And that's interesting that you fall exactly that, right. that far out. Um, I didn't realize it was quite that far out for um, long-term daily use. No, you're exactly right. Um, the, 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 the name of the game here, and it's based on primate research, is basically rehabituating people to use the affected arm. It's fu function is um, a fortunate um, happenstance. What we're really talking about is task-specific repetitive practice using the affected arm that gets people to start um, being used to using the affected arm. And that's what causes the brain to change over time. It's um, hypertrophy and atrophy almost. The brain changes um, um, with use, just like a muscle does. Um, and they're hypertrophic and um, um, uh, positive changes that facilitate um, arm function. And that happens with use, as you said. And so we're really try, trying to turn around the, the learn on use. Yeah. Um, so how can modified constraint-induced movement therapy be reimbursed are there specific considerations that need to be taken into place? Um, could you talk us through that a little bit? Sure. So um, the most important point is that there's no um, CPT code for constraint-induced therapy or for modified constraint-induced therapy or any therapy in the family of constraint-induced therapies. Um, so that's important. That being said, this is task specific. The therapies that you're doing with the patient for in 15 minute blocks for half an hour are um, self care training, their neuromuscular re education, they're those types of things. And those are the, the codes that um, we tend to use and that others tend to use. So, um, as you know, those, those codes enable you to do repetitive. Um, and I don't have the CPT codes here in front of me, but they um, basically allow you to do repetitive task specific sorts of things with certain goals in mind. Self-care training being the most notable example where you're having people, um, you know, ob obviously do things such as um, IADLs, ADLs, so on and so forth. So we tend to use those codes uh, because that's what we're doing during practices or during um, uh, therapy sessions is we're doing repetitive task specific 
self-care training, um, and um, th those are the, the codes that we tend to use. There's some Therax involved, obviously. Um, uh, stretching, sometimes some e-stim that will um, be thrown in to work on um, extension. Uh, so sometimes we'll use like an e-stim supervised code, something like that. Um, but really and truly, that's what we're doing is just task-specific practice. Um, the, the really important work, um, or the more important work, I would even say, happens at home when patients are trying to um, uh, build up those reps and trying to make things transfer to their home environment. What we're doing with patients is um, providing them with repetitions, working on um, form, working on them um, uh, having strategies to perform the tasks, um, uh, things like that. Okay. Um, so we talked about, you know, what it really looks like uh, from a clinic, from a clinic uh, billing standpoint and from intervention, the, the three different main parts, but um, can you go over who this might be helpful for um, and what inclusion into the, the treatment might hold? Yeah, I think that's a really important question as well, and I'm glad you asked it. Uh, constraint news therapy or modified constraint news therapy, this family of therapies only works on up to about 25% of all stroke patients. And the reason is, is only about 25% have that distal movement that I described, that is extension in the wrist and in the fingers, um, sorry, the wrist, two digits and the thumb specifically. So that is a very small proportion of stroke survivors, especially when you consider that in many, not all, but in many stroke survivors, um, uh, motor return goes from proximal to distal. So you're talking about patients who um, most of them have had that motor return uh, these patients usually have lesions that are in uh, favorable spots. These are patients who, um, obviously, the leg comes back usually before the arm, so they're, they might be driving, they're ambulating pretty well, they're um, just very good recoverers. Um, so the good news is, is that these patients um, who qualify for this um, tend to have good cognition. They tend to um, be participative. They tend to be motivated because um, they're... Um, cognitively intact, they don't have a lot of um, sequelae necessarily associated with a more severe stroke that you'd see, such as spasticity. The bad news is, is relatively speaking, there's not as many of them. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great, great therapy, but it's, it's obviously not for everybody. And you have to have strategies then to um, uh, move people along the continuum to get them to the point where they can participate in this therapy and be in that uh, upper 25% uh, stratum there. Um, so I'm going to jump around a little bit on the questions here, but um, you're fine. Uh, so kind of on the same vein, so typically, as I understand it, there's been less efficacy shown for patients who have more flaccid limbs. Is any of that starting to change? You had mentioned e-stim a little bit um, in, the, in the last answer. Can you just talk to that? Yeah, I think this isn't jumping around at all. I think this is a really good related question, which is, so what happens if you move further up the arm? If, if they don't have that wrist extension or they don't have that thumb extension or that two-digit extension? And the answer is um, there's a few studies I know of, we did one with modified constraint news showing that uh, the outcomes aren't as positive. 
Um, people, uh, patients do not do as well when they have less initial motor function. So that's the bad news. The good news is, is that um, we and other people have done studies showing that there are interventions that can take patients from uh, less movement to more movement and that more movement qualifies them for modified constraint-induced therapy. So you can almost think of it as, again, moving along a continuum. Patients starting off with, um, say, some um, active movement or some trace movement in um, the extensors in the affected arm, we can um, administer EMG-triggered stimulation. And we published a study at least 10 years ago showing that we can get back um, active wrist and finger movement such that they qualify for modified constraint-induced therapy. Um, another example is we did a study where we had patients with just a little bit of flexion but no extension, and we were able to actually administer a 10-week mental practice protocol. And again, they were able to get back the keep the flexion but get back some initial extension such that they were then able to participate in um, uh, modified CIHD. So the bad news is, is that we really appear to be stuck as a field with that, um, that those extension criteria. The good news is, is that um, uh, with the right resources and creativity, therapists can throw other stuff on the arm or at the arm and um, move patients toward uh, sort of that ultimate uh, goal of constraint-induced therapy or modified constraint-induced therapy. That's really interesting. Um, so on the other end of the spectrum, for a patient that has increased spasticity, uh, does Botox have a role or are there other types of treatments that, that may be able to work into that as well? Yeah, another great question. There have been studies. Uh, we did one, boy, like 15 years ago um, with Botox. And the thing about um, spasticity, which is what Botox is used for, is you get into this co-contraction flexor synergy where if patients do have active extension, it's sometimes masked by that flexor pattern that is um, part of spasticity. And what we've found, and at least one other study I'm aware has found, is that um, occasionally when you inject Botox, the patient actually has latent um, active extension there that uh, just simply wasn't um, detectable because the patient was in a flexor pattern. So um, at least in our study, we injected um, uh, uh, Botox into the wrist flexors, and by gosh, all of a sudden, this person had active extension. We gave them 10 weeks of modified constraint-induced therapy, and not only did um, their movement improve, but the spasticity did not come back. And we think that's, again, because of the use pattern and because of them moving uh, sort of along the continuum past um, associated reactions and spasticity towards uh, more isolated movements. So it's partly, if you think about the Brunstrom stages, we're trying to move people along those stages uh, where they don't have as much, um, uh, they're not stuck sort of in the middle there with lots of uh, spasticity and um, synergistic actions and that they're moving more towards isolated movement, which really represents brain recovery and the brain taking over movement. That's really interesting to hear Botox um, had a longer term effect. I know it's not necessarily directly related to the Botox, it's related to the therapy, but the, the conjoining of the two to kind of kick it off, um, I think opens the door for a lot of different patients. Um, so that's really interesting to hear. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, um, you know, Botox is not a cure, but Botox provides a block. It provides um, a window during which you can provide task-specific practice 
And the hope would be that, um, you know, a lot of times Botox isn't combined with therapy. The doctors sort of inject and therapy is not provided in some cases. But the hope would be that you provide Botox and it provides you that two to four month window during which you can provide really task specific sorts of stuff. And maybe the spasticity doesn't come back as severely. Interesting. So what is the typical time frame after stroke to perform this type of treatment? Is there an optimal time frame? Um, no, there's not. <laughs> Boring answer. Boring. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, the fact is, is with most stroke interventions, we don't know what the upper limit is. Um, most stroke studies have been done in chronic stroke survivors, people more than six to 12 months post-stroke, uh, including the work that we've done. Um, most of our stuff has been in chronic stroke. So we really don't know what the upper limit is. Um, for us, we had a guy who was 23 years post-stroke who did it and who participated and did quite well. So, um, you know, all other things being equal, um, there doesn't seem to be an upper limit. Um, so on the other end, how early could the intervention be um, performed to include safety and feasibility and, and that type of stuff? What um, what do you think about that? Or what have you read in the research and, and what are people talking about and trying, trying at this point? Now, that's a more interesting question for a few reasons. Um, first of all, as you get earlier post-stroke, um, as, as those of us who've worked in inpatient environments know, there's fewer patients who have that active movement earlier post-stroke, that, that movement in the wrist and the digits and so on and so forth. Um, so they're harder, those patients are harder to find um, but we actually did a study where we um, were able to find a, a handful, a gaggle of patients who had that active movement and administered constra uh, modified constraint use therapy. Um, you know, it went into the outpatient stages because um, they're obviously so good they weren't staying an inpatient, but um, the timing was still, they were less than four weeks post-stroke and they did very, very well. We think, um, and so the other thing I should say is, uh, before I say the we think part, is that if you look at the vectors trial and some of the other um, intensive um, constraint-induced therapy studies, um, that hasn't been the case. In other words, uh, patients getting traditional constraint-induced therapy haven't been um, uh, haven't done as well uh, in the, in the acute stages. We think that um, the reason that the modified one may work um, more effectively in this stage is because um, it's not as intensive, um, it maybe um, isn't as stressful. Uh, there's some people who have speculated that too intensive therapies too soon might be um, uh, detrimental to um, actually the, the lesion itself. Um, whereas I think a, um, a, a therapy that's only involving half an hour a day of therapy is probably um, not approaching that, those, those sorts of parameters where it would do damage. So. Bottom line is, is that uh, too soon, too intensive seems to be not such a hot idea, but um, early therapy that is task-specific, um, at least the evidence that we've produced suggests that uh, it seems to be due to uh, produce good outcomes. So you mentioned that the, the study that you did, uh, the patients ran out and went into outpatient what were some of the, the takeaways on feasibility as part of that study as they transitioned from inpatient to outpatient um, and or or doing the intervention truly an in inpatient? 
Well, so the reason they transition from inpatient to outpatient, which goes to your question about how easy it is to do it in inpatient, is because they were so high functioning, right? Mm -hmm. These were people who were only a few weeks post-stroke who could move uh, the affected wrist and fingers a little bit or extend them. They had good recovery in the leg. They usually had good cognitive recovery, so on and so forth. So um, that's why they weren't inpatients anymore. So then we get to the question of what do we do because they're um, transitioning from inpatient to outpatient. Um, And the lesson learned, at least for us, was make sure that they're going to stay in your system because otherwise you invest these resources in them and you start this very specialized therapy. And then all of a sudden, if they're not staying at your facility, you you lose them. Um, And so, um, you know, you might get maybe two weeks of constraint-induced therapy or modified constraint-induced therapy in, and then they go to the next environment. You don't, you don't get to continue with them, so you don't get all the reps in. Um, so I think the message is, is you've got to sort of have in mind what, where their discharge is going to be. If they're, if they're out of towners, uh, at Ohio State, we get people from all over the place, and sometimes they head back to West Virginia or back to their small town wherever in Ohio, and they, they don't use our outpatient services. Um, so if that's the case, they would not be good candidates if we were to try a modified constraint use therapy protocol on them. Um, when we were in Cincinnati, it was the same deal. That's where we did this study. Um, it wasn't um, successful um, if they were, you know, going back to their small town in Kentucky or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you had mentioned earlier that there was a study done with uh, lower level uh, hand and wrist function in the more chronic stages. Has anybody looked at it in a more acute stage? Um, or is it just... I don't... I don't believe so. Yeah. Um, interestingly, so there's, there's two answers to that that I have. One is, I don't believe so, but um, uh, the, the gentleman who developed uh, and originated constraint-induced therapy named Ed Taub, had, T-A-U-B, has a clinic in Alabama um, where he charges for constraint-induced therapy. And I'm, I, I would imagine that at some point he's probably had some people come down who maybe have had more recent strokes and are maybe more severe just to give it a go. Um, he, he brings in a lot of, um, I think, different people and does some important work. Um, the other interesting thing is, is um, he was one of the, the people originally who um, uh, wasn't in favor of, of lower dose constraint-induced therapies, but he actually does, I believe, a three-hour day constraint-induced therapy protocol, maybe even a little less. So I think as a field, we're starting to dose down and tighter down this therapy a little bit as well. So maybe it's the case that if we tightered it down and did it with um, more impaired people, maybe we'd see different changes. Maybe we could distribute the protocol over more weeks and see different types of changes. I'm not sure. But as for right now in the literature that I'm aware of, um, you know, the the wrist and fingers seems to be really important uh, to have in play. Okay. Um, You talked a little bit about uh, another researcher. What was it that brought you specifically to this type of research, this type of intervention? more personally? I was um, actually in exercise science. That's what my first master's is in, exercise science major. And so I had a background looking at dosing of exercise. I was uh, an ACSM um, accredited uh, trainer at one point. And ACSM, my, my background was um, uh, looking at uh, training and the ACSM guidelines and things like that. That's what I brought to the, to the table when I, when I entered my fellowship in New Jersey. Um, 
So my interest in it was, especially as a non-therapist, this, this literature was coming out on this promising therapy was, well, what would happen if we dosed it down? And the other part of it was um, my background's actually, my PhD is actually in motor learning. So I was already aware that um, differently dosed um, therapy programs can have different um, effects on um, outcomes. So I, I think I was coming from a, at it in both ways, from a, from a dosing standpoint, just wondering what could we do for something like my mom or someone, someone else's mom who's in a small town and um, you know, doesn't, doesn't have a lot of resources um, and wants to get therapy, but um, either can't or won't do this more intensive therapy. Can we dose it differently and, and get the same treatment effects? So some of it was personal, but a lot of it was just sort of where my training was coming from and looking at the intervention from um, a practical standpoint, whether it could be uh, administered or not. That is a very interesting uh, background um, to kind of take it and look at it in a different way from uh, not being non-clinical at that point in your career. Um, so that, I'm glad you shared that. Um, so in an ideal world, what do you think this type of treatment should look like? Wow, that's a great question. Um, well, I should first of all say that I don't have a clinic. I don't um, sell constraint use therapy. I, you know, I don't care if people use it or not. I think they should use the therapy that works best for them. And from a scientific standpoint, I'm sort of like consumer reports. Something comes across my table. You know, we test it as best we can, and some of the time it works, and some of the time it doesn't. And, uh, or send it on its way. So, um, and that's not necessarily always how the scientific field um, works. People get invested in different therapies and whatnot. So, I don't necessarily um, have a have a have skin in the game as to what it should look like. You know, I think that there's enough evidence out there. There's enough therapies out there, um, both published and what just people do on a daily basis, showing that you can get good treatment effects in 30 or 45 minutes. Um, of therapy. So I don't think we need to necessarily adjust the parameters of our therapy. I think that what the therapy starts to need to look like, um, which is sort of self-evident, is it needs to be task-specific. It needs to be focused on um, what the patient wants to do, what's meaningful to them, what is salient to them. Um, you know, I have yet to meet a professional cone stacker, yet I see patients all the time stacking cones and um, all those kinds of things. Um, uh, I think rope movements are good once in a while. I think stretching and facilitating is fine, but you've got, um, and it has a place, but um, home exercises should probably have more than just sort of moving your arms up and down and, and strengthening They should and range of motion. They should probably be progressed to be more challenging so that learning takes place. So I think the, uh, if I was to, to pick one little word out of there that would sort of encapsulate what I think it should look like, I think it's learning based. I think. Um, Learning drives the brain, and the brain moving drives uh, function, or the brain changing drives function. And we've got to look at our home exercise programs, and we've got to look at what patients are doing in their rooms when they're not with us, uh, as well as what we're doing with patients to make sure that there's, there's learning taking place, meaningful learning um, that's going to drive the brain to, to change so that movement changes. <laughs> Task-specific, 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 sounds like. I know. I'm a broken record, aren't I? No, I, I agree with you. I, and so do a lot of other people and a lot of other um, research. And 
you know, it, it's about how we get it out to the masses and and present it in a way that's uh, enjoyable for patients to to do as they as they progress. Exactly, that's exactly right. Uh, requires thought. My 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 dad used to say that people hate to think, <laughs> and it requires a lot of thought when you're um, sitting there with a patient and you're um, you get the the bar or the cone or whatever is sitting right there on the shelf and you're electing instead to to do something that's meaningful to the patient that requires maybe some more props or some different positioning or something like that that's hard to do hmm. that's interesting well thank you for joining us and that is our episode i'd like to thank Corey Hall and Dr. Stephen Page for giving us a lot of great information about constraint-induced movement therapy. And please do keep an eye out for our next episode coming up this year. We're hopeful to have several new episodes coming this year. Until next time, I'm your host, Jason Diaz. Take care.